Well, good morning. morning. How are you guys doing? I'm a little bummed that this is my last time here. Um, I almost got ran out of the church last Sunday, so I don't know what's going to happen this this Sunday. But um, I do apologize. My family is not here. Uh, There were plans to come here this morning. Things happened. Got a little out of control as things happened with a a family. I won't go into details. It's not that big of a deal. But uh, my wife has responsibilities at our church right now. So... Uh, That is primarily why. Um, She needed a cover for somebody at the nursery. Was that like a, aw? Thanks, guys. I appreciate that. Okay, so this is my last Sunday, and I want to leave you guys with something I think is um, good to think about and reflect upon. So hear now God's holy and perfect word. Lamentations 3, 31 through 33 states, For the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you that your glory has been revealed to us in our hearts. That your plan is going forth with power and authority. That you chose us before the foundation of the world was set that this does not cause us to be a chosen frozen. But as, Pastor, as Paul was, 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 uh, was praying, Lord, I pray that each one of us would know that we're not here by accident at this church. Each one of us has a role. Each one of us is your servant. When you call us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, promising also in Acts to be with us, As we do this, Lord, I pray that we would take that charge seriously. That it wouldn't be an optional thing. But that you would imprint that deeply upon our hearts because of how deeply we are loved. And I pray that you would receive all the glory this morning, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me ask you guys a few questions. I think they need something up there. Oh, Lamentations 3, 31 through 33. Any other questions? It's Q&A time. Um, I want to ask you guys, where would you find a train? Train station, okay. It's really tough questions. All right. Where would you find an airplane? Airport. Airport, okay. Where would you find a car? Carport. Carport. <laughs> where would you find a tree? Okay, where would you find an insect? On the ground. ground. See, all of your answers are true, but not completely true, because in a sense, each answer given is your immediate response out of your heart. It's it's your immediate, immediate thoughts. Some of us, depending on what our presuppositions are that we're bringing to the table or what we've experienced that day, will give different answers. But they wouldn't be any more wrong or more right. These are what are called subjective answers. Or the scientific method, the answers to our results are inconclusive, right? Not enough information has been asked. Now we have to ask the question, where would you find out about God? The Bible. Where would you find out about Jesus Christ? The Bible. Generally, when one philosophically thinks of the person of Jesus Christ, their general disposition is such that they're going to answer that Jesus is found in the New Testament. 
Ask anyone on the street, and unfortunately, many in church these days, you'll find the general answer to be the same. Jesus Christ is found in the New Testament. So when we look to the heart of Christ, what I've been talking about these last three weeks, we find this rich details on his action, on his work, on his person, on his character, on what he did, and travels throughout the entire Gospels and even a little bit in the book of Acts. Then the rest of the New Testament really talks about applying the application of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's revealed to the churches in letters, in addresses, and even revelation for encouragement to the churches. But in order to get a better understanding of Christ, we have to understand ourselves that we need to go to the Old Testament and study its rich explanations of him and his heart, because it is a reflection of who he is. What I want to demonstrate today is that when we see Christ unveil his deepest desire, his deepest heart, which is gentle, which is lowly, which is humble, which is willingly going to the cross on our behalf, he is continuing on the natural trajectory of what God had already been displaying and revealing about himself throughout the entire Old Testament. Jesus provides sharp new contrast to who God is, but not fundamentally new content. See, the Gospels themselves show that they understood the Old Testament to be preparing for us a humble servant, according to Matthew 21.5. It says, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. The incarnate Son does not send our understanding of who God is spinning off in a new direction. I remember there was a popular Christian song by an old school band named DC Talk. Maybe some of you guys are recalling that band to mind, DC Talk. That's your favorite band still. They, 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 they had this song, God is doing a new thing. You know, he's doing it. No? Okay. But the context of their song seemed to suggest that Jesus was the new thing, almost replacing the concept put forth in the Old Testament. Jesus, on the other hand, of truth, besides DC Talk, simply provides an unprecedented example, flesh and blood reality of what God has already been doing to convince his people down throughout the ages of who he is. As Calvin put it, the Old Testament is the shadowy revelation of God, true but dim. The New Testament is the substance, and a good launching off point of where we consider the heart of God in the Old Testament is in Lamentations chapter 3. Now, a little bit about this book to get some context. No book in the Bible is so striking in its joining of profound emotion with literary intricacy as Lamentations. The author, who is Jeremiah, is pouring out his heart, lamenting and extreme like, about the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. by the Babylonians and the horrors of starvation, the horrors of death and hopelessness that ensued because of this. Yet he pours out his heart through a series of five ornately structured poems reflecting extreme literary care. You can see this by simply looking at the versification in our English Bibles. Although the chapters and verse numbers were put in there, were added until many centuries after Lamentations was written, these divisions in our modern Bibles really reflect the clear divisions of the book itself. 
you'll notice that the five, of the five chapters, the first two chapters have 22 verses. And the last two chapters have 22 verses. But in the chapter 3, which is very careful, carefully constructed, has three times that many, has 66 verses. Each chapter is itself a carefully constructed lament. Now with this overarching structure to the book, in view, we understand that the literary high point of this book, of Lamentations, of this entire letter, is verse 33 of chapter 3. It's the exact middle of the book, and it captures the heart of the book itself. Lamentations 3.33 is the book of Lamentations in a nutshell. What does it say? It grounds the surrounding assurances of God's eventual mercy and restoration with the following theology. For he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. Other translations say, and I believe more properly, he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Now this is an implicit premise in this verse. There's an implicit premise and an explicit statement. The implied and what is explicit, what is clear. So let's, let's talk about the implicit premise is that God is indeed the one who afflicts. That's implied. The explicit statement is that he does not do it from the heart. The implicit premise, I think, has to be carefully understood before we move forward. When we speak of what God does or does not do from his heart, we are not limiting his sovereign rule. We can't limit it more broadly. Indeed, to the degree that we believe God is sovereign in all of our affliction, to the degree that we are able to be comforted that he does not afflict us from his heart. Those two go hand in hand. First, then, we remember the beauty of divine sovereignty, which you're going to go to. Hopefully, some of you will go to this G3 conference. I mean, I was fired up when I saw that video. I was like, sign me up. That video was on fire. We have to remember good and bad. God is sovereign. He is in complete control. Do you believe that? When you stub your toe, do you believe that God is sovereign over your stub toe? <laughs> the poison ivy, the backstabbing friend, the chronic neck pain or back pain, the people-pleasing boss who won't stand up for us, the wayward child, the vomiting at 2 a.m., the unrelenting darkness of depression. Do you believe that God is in control of those? The Belgic Confession beautifully articulates God's sovereignty and his governance over all things in teaching about divine providence, part of which reads in Article 13, this doctrine gives us unspeakable comfort since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance, but only by the arrangement of our gracious Heavenly Father who watches over us with fatherly care, sustaining all creatures under his lordship, so that not one of their hairs on their heads, for they are all numbered, nor even a little bird can fall to the ground without the will of the Father. Throughout Lamentations, this is unfiltered view of divine sovereignty is everywhere at play. Glancing at chapter 3, for example, I mean, just open up your Bibles, if you haven't already, to chapter 3. If you look at the beginning of a lot of these verses... The author is recounting the horrors that God himself brings upon Israel. 
In verses 2 through 16, it all begins with he. That's significant. He has made, in verse 4, he has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about, and I can go on and on and on. He has. But at the theological bullseye of this entire book, we are told that God does not bring such pain from his heart. Here in Lamentations, the Bible is taking us into a deep dive into God himself. The one who rules and ordains all things to pass brings affliction into our lives with a certain divine reluctance. He's not reluctant about the ultimate good that is going to be brought about through the pain. That is indeed why he's doing it. But sometimes God, if I can say this, recoils within himself in sending that affliction. And I'll, I'll explain that. The pain itself does not reflect his heart. Doesn't define him. He is not some platonic force pulling heaven's levers and pulleys up in heaven without this detached kind of sense from the real pain and anguish we feel. He is, if I can put it this way without questioning his divine perfections, conflicted within himself when he sends affliction into our lives. Now let me explain. God is indeed punishing Israel for their waywardness in regards to Babylon and the Babylonians sweeping through the city. He is sending what they deserve. He is glorified in their judgment. But his deepest heart is their merciful restoration. That's why he's doing it. Thomas Goodwin explains well through this is a long quote, so bear with me. My brethren, though God is just, yet his mercy may in some respect said to be more natural to him than all acts of justice itself that God does show. I mean vindictive justice. In these acts of justice, there is a satisfaction to an attribute and that he meets and is even with sinners. Yet there is a kind of violence done to himself in it. The scriptures so expresses it. There is something in it that is contrary to him. Quote, I desire not the death of a sinner. That is, I delight not simply in it for pleasure's sake. When he exercises acts of justice, it is for a higher end. It is not simply for the thing itself. There is always something in his heart against it. But when he comes to show mercy, to manifest that, uh, that it is his natural it is nature and disposition. It is said that he does it with his whole heart. There is nothing at all in him that is against it. The act itself pleases him for itself. There is no reluctance in him. Therefore, Lamentations 3.33, he states, when he speaks of punishing, he says he does not from his heart afflict nor grieve the children of men. But when it comes to speak of showing mercy, he does it, quote, with his whole heart and with his whole soul, as the expression in Jeremiah 32.41. And therefore, acts of justice are called, called his strange work. Or his strange act in Isaiah 28, 21. But when he comes to show mercy, he rejoices over them to do them good with his whole heart and with his whole soul. Goodwin brings a few other texts. Jeremiah 32, 41. It says, yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good. I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. Notice he's not saying some. As if there's something holding back. There's no divine reluctance here. God chooses and wants to and desires to bless us. 
to love us, to show us wayward sinners, people who are sick in the mud, to pick us up. His desire is to take us underneath the fold of his wings and to protect us. That's his whole heart. And yet Isaiah 28, 21, when God's judgment activity, it's called his awesome or unusual work. New King James Version states, for the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perizim. He will be angry as in the Valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his awesome work, and bring it to pass, his act, his unusual act. See, tying these texts together with Lamentations 3.33, Goodwin is drawing out the Bible's revelation of what God's deepest heart is. That is, what he delights to do, what is most natural to him. I recently watched a movie called Pride and Prejudice. You guys ever seen that movie with Keira Knightley? I know, super amazing, exciting movie. But the protagonist in the story, a lady named Elizabeth Bennet, I'm teaching this book at a private Christian school right now, so that's besides the point, but it's fun. He makes, she makes a series of decisions that, when seemingly correct, proved to be false upon further introspection. It was her pride that prevented her from seeing certain things about her future husband. I don't know why, but it's phenomenal. Anyways, I say all of these things as examples because we ourselves are often blinded at seeing the truth of God right before our eyes. And oftentimes it's our pride that prevents it. We see God move and act in our lives, and mistaking it for something other than what it is, we despise and reject the good discipline of God. We don't like discipline. That hasn't changed. When we were kids, we didn't like to be disciplined by our father or by our mother. That still hasn't changed. We don't grow out of that. But when we realize, when we read this text, we realize that mercy is natural or usual to God. Punishment is unnatural or unusual. Some of us view God's heart as brittle, as easily offended. Some of us view his heart as cold, as uneasily moved. And yet the Old Testament gives us a God whose heart defies these innate human expectations of who he is. We are akin to Elizabeth Bennett, judging God based upon what we perceive, yet forgetting that we do not have all the information nor understanding. Now we have to tread very cautiously here. All of God's attributes are non-negotiable. For God to cease to be, say, just, would un-God just as much as if he were to cease to be good. Theologians speak of God's simplicity, by which we mean that God is not the sum total of a number of attributes, like pieces of a pie making a whole. Rather, God is every attribute perfectly. God does not have parts. He is just. He is wrathful. He is good, and so on, each in endless perfection. I can't even wrap my head around that. Even when it comes to the matter of God's own heart, we see the complexity in the opening chapters or opening book of the the entire Bible. The first two major decisions that God makes in dealing with creation are both said to be matters of his heart when he destroys all flesh except Noah in Genesis 6-6 and accepting Noah's sacrifice and determining never to flood the earth again in Genesis 8-21. 
Apparently, God is so complex enough to make decisions of judgment and of mercy from his heart. Yet at the same time, if we're to follow closely and yield to Scripture's testimony, we walk into the breathtaking claim that from another deeper angle, there are some things that pour out of God more naturally than others. I think that's pretty significant. I need to remember that when I fail. I need to remember that when God calls me to repent. That he's not up there waiting to punish me. But he's up there waiting, excited to embrace me. This is what we might call a deep dive here, but it has merit. God is unswaveringly just. But what is his disposition? What is his disposition? The other morning, I woke up my son Noah, who's 16. And um, I have this YouTube channel about 80s arcade games. Don't go there. But as I woke him up, I, I scared him. And he just knocked the phone out of my hand. It was pretty funny. You guys can laugh. It's okay. What was natural to him when I first woke him up was anger. My daughter... She's, when she was 13, she used to go to this uh, school on Wednesdays. It was downstairs of my office. And during lunch break, she would like to come up and sneak up, take up the stairs and sneak up behind me and try and scare me. But she never could. She thought she was like a ninja, but she was more like that Chris Farley ninja. And so she was only so loud, she never could scare me. She was getting frustrated. And one time I had to go down and make a printed copy of something. And she was in there waiting for me in my office. I didn't hear her come up. And she jumped out of the room and scared me really bad. Now, you might think that I'm, you know, a really good person. But when she scared me, what came out of my mouth was, praise Jesus for he is holy. Being sarcastic. I didn't. What came out of my mouth, what my natural disposition was, what is most natural to me at that point, is to jump back and defend myself. So I took a swing at her, and I knocked her. No, I'm kidding. I didn't do that. But if you catch me off guard, right, what will leap out of me before I have time to regain composure will likely be grouchiness. If you catch God off guard, not like you ever could, but what leaps out of God most freely is blessing. The impulse to do good, to show mercy. He sent his son to die for us. The impulse to do good, to reconcile us to himself. To protect us. That is why Goodwin can say of God that all his attributes seem to be set out of his love. In other words, that's how we can say that he loves us enough to send discipline our way, as in Hebrews 12. That's how James can write to us that we consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Like, that's very significant. Like, God's not doing this out of, like, despite but he's doing it with this kind of reluctance to go, look, you need to understand how much I love you. And right now your focus is not on me. So when I send discipline your way, understand that I'm doing it for your good. Now 
That's why over and over again, the New Testament, Old Testament writers, for that matter, can encourage the saints amidst their affliction. Another key Old Testament text is Hosea 11. We're on the heels of Israel's spiritual fornication and abandoning of her divine lover, God recounts with stirring terms of affection how he has felt towards Israel. When Israel was a child, I loved him, he said. Or Hosea 11, 3-4, I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms. Remember that? Many of you have had children, teaching your children to walk. It's not exactly a violent action. But they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love. And I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. And despite this tender care, in verse 11 of Hosea, it states that my people are bent on turning away from me. Or verse 2, that they persist in idolatry. What then is God's response to us? What then is God's response to his people? When we are wayward, Right When we make mistakes, when we fall and we sin time and time again. Well, Hosea 11, 8-9 states, How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboim? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. This is, this is the prophet, Hosea, speaking of God's heart. It's churning within him. His sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger, he says. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man. The Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. We cannot think of God in such human, like, as if I were God, judging myself. This should be remembered because it uniquely tunnels into the, the heart of God in a way similar to Lamentations 3. In commenting on Hosea 11.8, Jonathan Edwards says something strikingly similar to what Goodwin says in Lamentations 3. He says this, God has not pleasure in the destruction or calamity of persons or people. He had rather they should turn and continue in peace. He is well pleased if they forsake their evil ways that they may not have occasion to execute his wrath upon them. He is a God that delights in mercy, and judgment is his strange work. Following the lead of Scripture, following the lead of Edwards, of Goodwin, they call mercy what God most deeply delights in, and judgment his strange work. Isn't that fascinating? Have you ever thought about that before? It has brought so many things to mind for me about God, about my presuppositions towards God, and about how I view my trials or my discipline from God. And as we read and reflect on this teaching from great theologians of the past, such as Jonathan Edwards and Thomas Goodwin, we need to understand that they are not calling judgment God's strange work out of a deluded sense of the wrath and justice of God. Edwards is most famous for his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Has anybody here read that before? Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? It's a terrifying depiction of this precarious state of the impenitent under the wrath of God. Though not so terrifying as some of his other sermons. If you really want to read a terrifying sermon, read the justice of God and the damnation of sinners. But this was a man who affirmed God, who delights in mercy. But judgment is his strange work. Thomas Goodwin he stood up and spoke from the floor of the Westminster Assembly 
more often than any other divine in the creation of the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Standards in the 1640s. He spoke there 357 times. The standards state that great, precise, hell-believing, wrath-affirming statement of faith that teaches that when those are out of Christ die now, they are, quote, cast into hell where they remain in torments and utter darkness reserved to the day of judgment. That can be found in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 32.1. It also speaks of the final judgment. The wicked who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast into eternal torments and be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord in chapter 33. That was Goodwin's theology too. He has influential hand in crafting the entire Westminster Confession of Faith as anybody. But as for Goodwin's own writing, he had no hesitation in writing the most exquisite pains of hell where God's wrath and his word and his torment he would torment men forever, for he knows how to torture exquisitely those who persist in sin and do not repent. That's a little ish, if you ask me. That's pretty hardcore. Edwards, Goodwin, and the theological river in which they stand were not mushy. They affirmed and preached and taught divine wrath and eternal hell. They saw these doctrines in the Bible like 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, just to name an example, as true. But because they knew their Bibles inside and out and followed their Bibles scrupulously, they discerned also that Scripture talks about a God who most deeply is, and that's his heart, about his heart. And this, perhaps, is the secret to their time-tested influence. See, there's a kind of preaching and Bible teaching that has not felt the heart of God for this fickle people, that is not tasted what naturally pours forth from them, which for all its precision ultimately deadens the heart. But not so the Puritans or the great preachers of the past. They knew that when God deigns to lavish goodness on his people, he does it with a certain naturalness reflective of his deep heart, of who he is. For God to be merciful is for God to be God. But our own natural intuitions about God if we are left to our own natural intuitions, we will conclude that mercy is his strange work and judgment is his natural or usual work. If I were to reflect on somebody who has hurt me, my natural response to them is to hurt them back. Right? When my wife and I are in an argument, we never argue at all, ever. But if we just say we were in an argument... If she says something, my natural inclination, let's just pretend, would be to say something right back. That is who we are. Our natural work is judgment. But we are not God. God says very clearly, I am God and not man. His natural work is mercy and love. That is so huge. Rewiring our vision of God as we study Scripture, we see, helped by the great preachers of the past, that judgment is his strange work, and mercy is his natural or usual work. He does not afflict and grieve the children of men, or he does afflict and grieve the children of men, but he doesn't do it from his heart. His deepest heart is one of mercy and resurrection. 
And nothing can be clearer than sending his own son to die a gruesome death that we all deserve. Giving us faith in that work before the foundation of the world was set so that we might have newness of life and be reconciled to this awesome, terrible, yet loving God. Now let me end on this in John 17. I didn't have it in my Bible all out. John 17 is Christ's high priestly prayer. Just think about this verse. Verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Did you guys catch that? That we are loved by God? That Jesus' prayer is that we would be loved by God as much as God loves him. What more do you need to hear to desire to come before him in worship and praise and thankfulness? Nothing else can offer that. And we go to our material things like a dog returns to its vomit. And God is calling us out of that and sometimes we don't listen. And so he sends affliction our way. But that's not his natural disposition. His desire is that we come to him freely, that he will be glorified in us. And so he sends affliction, not from his heart. He doesn't grieve us from his heart. He sends affliction so that we would become more like his son and come back to him. If affliction is coming your way or is here or has been here, reflect on that. Reflect on the goodness and mercy of God because that is what's most natural to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you for this church. Thank you for the elders. Thank you for the worship team. Thank you for the tech team. Thank you for the nursery workers. Thank you for Sunday school. Thank you for all the things that this church is primed to do in the future. Lord, I ask that you would create a resolve in this place to be confident and bold in you. Lord, we are not wise, but you have not chosen the wise. We are foolishness to this world, but I pray that we would always carry around us the aroma of Christ. Lord, they would see you. We are not the light you are. I pray, Lord, for this church that it would be bold in the South Bay. That leaders would be raised up in this church. That evangelists would be raised up in this church. That preachers and teachers, that those who give hospitality well, that all your gifts, Lord, 
that you've given us would be used for your glory. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.